We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Lynn Johnson, former Assistant Secretary to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, joins Jim Lyon for conversation about foster care and opportunities for real change when we work together for kids in need. I am so thrilled to have, uh, at all that to say today, Lynn Johnson. And Lynn is a person who has invested most of her adult life in becoming an advocate for children, for minors, for people who don't always have voice and find themselves in desperate circumstances that they did not choose for themselves, but that life has cast them to walk in. And Lynn, thank you for joining us today. I am so excited to be able to just learn more about you and your work, your passion, and what's actually happening in the world all around us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jim. It's an honor to talk to you and to share my journey. And uh, Lynn, I, I, I'm just going to put full disclosure right up front. I'm a person who was conceived out of wedlock by two people who were not American citizens, who was relinquished uh, at birth and placed into a foster care scenario where someone took me into their home. Man, I wish I could find out their names because I'm an old man and a lot of water's gone under the bridge and I cannot identify them. But what they did is that they took me into their home and then over a period of months uh, protected me and cared for me and ultimately placed me in the hands of what was called the Children's Home Society of Washington. It was an orphanage in Seattle. And from there I was adopted. Now, I don't have conscious memory of all of those steps, of course, in my earliest years, but the narrative has framed my whole life because I've never taken for granted what I experienced having a family. Family matters so much. I'm only throwing that out there because if I get a little weepy-eyed or something in this conversation, I don't want you to think I've, I've just lost it. It just actually connects to me at a very deep level, which brings me to Lynn Johnson. You have, and as I understand it, you've, you've really had three big chapters maybe that have brought you to prominence, if that's the term, uh, in dealing in the child welfare space. And, and one starts in suburban Denver, where you work in the Jefferson County system and, and, and have so much innovation and success. Again, those are hard words maybe when you're talking about people's lives, but effective work. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, you find yourself... Uh, with a tap on the shoulder to join the Trump administration. And in that, you become the assistant secretary under the Department of Health and Human Services, which is, of course, this huge, gabillion-dollar federal agency, which is subdivided, and you became uh, the chief of the administration for children and family services. And then the page turned again, and now you find yourself in a leading role at CityServe, which is a national movement to engage churches and the people of faith in helping to intervene in the course of human life and your specialty there, as before, with child welfare. Now, with that little brief resume, 
how in the world did you get involved in this? I mean, did you grow up as a child thinking, boy, someday I'm going to be on the front lines of child welfare? Or how did that evolve in your own journey? Thank you, Jim. And um, I'm honored to hear your story. That is something I um, value that I listen to others as they tell me their journeys through the child welfare system in foster care, in orphanages, and how you come to find your loving family. So thank you for sharing that that tidbit. And I get weepy-eyed even when I talk about this issue. So I expect we both might want to have Kleenex before this call is I'm over. I'm for it. I'm for it. But the... Um, my journey did not start in any way, shape, or form saying I want to be in child welfare. In fact, quite the opposite. I was moving into being a probation and parole officer, started as a juvenile probation and parole officer, and decided I don't want to work with these kids. And so I went to adult probation and parole, ultimately for 18 years. I had a call from a governor who said, I've heard about your work with really hard offenders and would like you to come work for me to help me change systems, because I understand you're not really happy with the human service system. And I had had an offender who came into my office and said, would you please put me back in prison? Because I've been working with human services for over three weeks, and I need to clear my head. And that was my vision of what human services did is complicate people's lives and make them jump through some hoops and all those things that I thought, no wonder my guys go back to prison and reoffend. So that was the start. But working with the governor and then moving on to running Jefferson County Human Services, I had the opportunity to learn what works for people on the ground. What helps move somebody from being released from prison to success, self-sufficiency, with dignity and respect. What works for a homeless person who is so scared, so hungry with their kids and to get them to that next step? And for 11 years, my team, I had a little over a thousand staff. We worked on every single piece we could. And that included a project that we started around our Head Start, 400 families that were 100% of poverty, where we wrapped around them to say, how what kind of principles move people to success? And we asked them. We didn't tell them. We asked people that have walked that. We brought in what's called Power of Partnership, which is 100 faith-based groups that wrapped around people that were needy. If they needed something, if they need the lawn mowed and you're a senior, if you are a grandma wanting to take your kids, we made sure you had car seats and cribs and, and a location to live. And those faith-based churches who did this through service to walk as Jesus does, changed the trajectory for the lives of all these people in Jefferson County, which then led me to Washington, D.C. <laughs> There's so much right there that oh, I want to dive into. Uh, but I'm hearing you say that as you didn't actually have an ambition to be in child welfare, welfare per mm -hmm. se, but it evolved as you walked through uh, human services writ large. And yeah. I just have to ask, what drew you into what I'll call sociology or or social work? Is that something that you always had? Or you, you actually wanted to be a car mechanic and decided one day, I need to help these people. <laughs> How did that work? I always wanted to be a social worker in criminal justice. I always wanted to work in the prisons, probation, parole, with people who have had a really, really rough time. I pictured myself working in inner city with gangs. And so I did see 
myself working with people in a social work way. But um, once I became a probation and parole officer, it led me to learning that I could help fix systems. Okay, but I have to go a little farther with that. So, I mean, where did you grow up that would prompt you to think of such things? Were you in a, in a big urban environment, or you saw a movie once, or you read a book, or, or there was just a certain inner stirring? What would you describe? A lot of reading books. When you say that, it just dawned on me. Um, so one of my favorite books was The Outsiders, way back in the 80s, um, probably in the 70s when I read that, actually. And it was about gangs in the inner city. And I lived in a very middle class, maybe lower middle class area that um, and in my school, I was the one that was helping others to whether they needed help with school, help with anything. But it was just I was drawn to service. And um I used to, I remember praying when I was very little and saying, Lord, please let me be a saint. Well, I didn't grow up acting like a saint. And my mother used to say that I became a parole officer because I would either be on parole or a parole officer. <laughs> You're going to be on one side but, of the coin. <laughs> that's right. But the, um, the book, The Outsiders, and then I remembered a book called Go Ask Alice that um, in the 60s and 70s during the drug culture about someone who had gotten addicted. And I was just intrigued. And I think things like that led me to, I want to help in that realm. And that's been the journey it's from day one. But nothing was um, pre-planned. So when I went into my first prison, I thought I was going into a domestic violence shelter. It was an old hotel, finding out I'm working in a maximum security prison, then went to be a parole officer, and then went to human services. None of those were planned. God had a plan. And it was bigger than anything I would have planned for myself. And every move was uncomfortable. Every move was moving um, into an area that I had to trust the Lord that this is where I was meant to go. Now I look back and I see that every piece of that journey that God led me to was preparing me for when I ended up in Washington, D.C. And I hope today, for today, it was preparing. These were things I never thought I would do. I just have to observe, Linda, just listening to you speak. Uh, I'm a person who believes that God creates us on purpose. And there's a certain destiny, providential. Uh, that's the trick in life, isn't it? Is, is figuring out what that call really is. But he doesn't waste anything. And all of those steps build one upon the other for you to discover something that you may not have recognized early in your life, but you know now was part of a purpose. And uh, I celebrate that with you. That is so inspiring. But let Thank me you. dial back a little bit to right into the reality today, because as we talk about child welfare, my mind races to foster care. Uh, give us a glimpse of the reality in the United States today about the foster care, can I call it a crisis or challenge? How many children are in foster care? What's the status? What would, how would you lay the lay? The, how would you unpack this for an audience that doesn't think about foster care much? The first thing I would say is it's not necessarily always a crisis. Thank God that we have this program that when a child is sexually assaulted, physically abused, starved, sleeping in a room, locked in a room, that we have a system that will come in and really help those children get out of the horrible situation they're in. So on any given day, you might have 430, 450,000 children in the U.S. in our foster care system. Well, let's just stop. To give content, 450,000 people, that would be 
Salt Lake City, or, or I mean, as right. a population core mass, that is a mm-hmm. huge mm-hmm. number. And you're saying at it's any one time, number. right now as we're talking, probably that number in foster care. Exactly. Wow. About 700 children a day are being called about onto the hotline to a foster care system. And that's a lot of children. But at the same time, you have to remember those that are really, truly being abused, this is a blessing. For those that we can reunite with their families or that need, um, 62% of those children are removed because of consequences of poverty. So when we talk about consequences of poverty, one young boy told me that his mom didn't have a mattress, so he ended up in the system for eight years. What could we have done as a community to wrap around a family? It's not writing a check. There's a reason she couldn't buy a mattress. And maybe she had lost a home and maybe she had lost a job. And maybe we don't know that. I don't know that story. But what could have prevented? What could we have done as as people walking like Jesus to make sure that child didn't have the trauma of being removed from his mom, the trauma of not being in a home, all those things matter. And so that 62% that are removed because of consequences of poverty can completely be eliminated or at least a huge number decreased. 120,000 or more of those children that were removed are sitting in the system. The rights with their parents have already been terminated and we end up with the situation of Are they going to be adopted? Are they moving out of the system and being aged out to no family? What do we do with 120,000 waiting kids? And if we focus on that, could we eliminate that number too? Why do we need to have kids sitting? One young boy that I just love, Josh, 18 years, 18 moves. That doesn't have to happen. So can we as a church body be in the community and be helping to eliminate those kids who wait and wait every morning, waking up wondering, is today the day I'll have a family? And that's a big piece of the numbers that I focus on. The back end, 120,000 kids, the front end, 62%. And then what happens when no one adopts a child? About 20,000 kids move out of the system and they're on their own. And that's where I've taken personally a real passion. Wow, let me active listen to what you've just uh, shared. So powerful. Uh, we have a population of 450,000 approx in the foster care system. 62% of those are in the system because of some consequence of economic uh, disadvantage. And, and I'm hearing you say, that's remedial. I mean, that's, that's a relatively easy problem to solve if we had the will to do it and, and the infrastructure to do it. You also have 120,000 that could be adopted. These are children in the system whose whose parental legal rights have been terminated. So they're they're free floating, as it were. If someone would bring them into their home, but a huge number of those are not adopted, and they matriculate. If that's <laughs> that's not like a well, it's a hard knock school of life. They they move through the system and become, by law at least, adults without ever having another family, even though they may not be emotionally or. Uh, relationally prepared to walk into the world's adult, they are. And I'm hearing you say that's a population you especially uh, have a heart for or are, are working to help us address. How many people, how many foster children are adopted? Do you have any idea? I do. About um, 64% are adopted each year. 
mostly by their foster parents, some by relatives, and some are reunited with their parents because the parents, let's talk consequences of poverty, they've overcome some substance abuse. They handled their mental health, depression, or anxiety. They've taken care of themselves for well-being so that the child can go home. So we do have about 64%, 65, that end up adopted. Adopted, which could include being restored to their family of origin. Right. Right. But that still leaves a very big number that aren't. And that brings us back to the 120,000 and so on. Well, I mean, you, um, well, what happens when somebody graduates from foster care without a family? And we, we call that aging out of the system. And so on the negative side, one in four will experience homelessness or one or more times before the age of 24. 71% of the children, the youth, become pregnant, the women, before age 21. Nearly one in three are involved with the criminal justice system by age 21. And by age 24, only half of these young people, they're now young adults, are employed. Think about it this way. The social costs of the kids aging out and to the streets is over a lifetime, about $300,000. If you take 20,000 kids a year times that $300,000, we're talking billions of dollars in social costs to the taxpayer that we can totally change. This is such a doable issue and fixable issue that if we just all focus on these kids, on the 122,000, decrease the number coming in because of consequences of poverty, you don't have 20,000 kids aging out of the system. Well, what portion of $300,000 could be uh, front-loaded, as it were, to redeem the child from this course and how much more efficient that would be? Of course, when we talk about human life and experience, dollars and cents are not the sum of it, but I'm hearing you describe truly an approachable problem. This is So I think many of us hear the word foster care and people throw their hands up like, oh, this is just the sad reality of a broken world, but actually you're a person with ideas and with drive to problem solve and believe that it can be solved. And right. it's no surprise to me, just listening to you talk for a few minutes, Lynn, uh, articulate and passionate as you are. I mean, your whole self is jumping off the screen to me as you describe the reality. No surprise to me that you would find yourself invited to Washington, D.C. Uh, to, to a national platform of working and wrestling with this issue. So I just have to ask, how did that happen? Were you surprised? What is it, what happens? Does Donald Trump or Mike Pence just give you a call? Or, or <laughs> what, what's the bridge building? What's your story there? Well, interestingly for me, um, I loved being the director of a county agency because I was able to see so much success. But when President Trump won, I called a friend of mine in Washington, D.C., and I asked him, I said, can I help you find the right person to run human services, to do the poverty work, to work with kids? And he said, um, you know, what? let me call you back. And that was it. It was over. And I said, I guess I can't be on the transition team. Um, and then shortly after, Secretary Price called and said, um, I've looked at your resume. I've looked at your work. I would really like you to consider being my assistant secretary. And yes, I just about fell off my chair. But the because it was big, again, like everything else I had done, totally, totally new to me, totally big. And it is something I've learned through my whole journey. God never 
does small things. God <laughs> never says, you know, we'll just take you on this little journey. He always says, all right, sky's the limit. Go. I'll qualify you. I will be with you. I will walk with you. But I live in the suburbs. I have three amazing kids. My husband's incredible. I was running the school to end poverty and all these good things were happening. So we prayed on it and we talked about it. And I was the one I was saying, are you sure I should leave? You know, my family, I've got my parents, they're aging. What should I do? And my family looked at me and said, you get one chance to make a difference in this world. Why would you say no? So with a lot of prayer, I put my yes on the table, flew to D.C. many times. It took over 18 months for me to be confirmed. And just going through that makes you wonder, do you really want to do this? Yes, it's really the right I thing. Be? Yeah, it was. Um, it was tough and it was tough times during during that first couple years. I'm watching things from the news and saying, is that really happening or is this for real or I'm walking into that. And then I walked in in 2018, September, and got an apartment. I, um, My kids joked I was making myself a chick pad, <laughs> and I sold my car. I learned to use the Metro. I learned to um, take an Uber and live in a city. And it was the most joyous, amazing, hardest thing I've ever done. But I would do it over again in a minute. I'm glad no one told me that we would have um, a pandemic, um, Black Lives Matter, protests, um, refugee surges. And that was all a lot of that under my watch, because then I would have said, I don't know anything about so much of that. <laughs> That's right. I, but I, yeah. Sitting in that seat and with my faith, I was calm the whole time. I worked 24-7. I had a great team. I prayed all the time. and. God was with me. It worked. It was good things happening in the storm. So I saw the joy during that storm, and I know there's rainbows out there. Well, what an adventure, I'd say. And and probably yeah. just one of more adventures that uh, will come down the road. But as you're approaching this uh, phenomenal opportunity, tell us about the Administration for Children and Families. I think everyone has heard of HHS, the, the vast federal department under which this sits, but what is the Administration for Children and Families? What's that portfolio? I'm guessing that's a very big portfolio. What does it cover? Well, we have 65 programs, over $59 billion budget. It took me a long time to say B billion <laughs> instead of M million, yeah, yeah. but um, Children's Bureau, Child Welfare, all of those issues. Um, the Administration for Native Americans. I don't think people realize that's under the Administration for Children and Families. The Office of Refugee Services. Refugees, survivors of torture, unaccompanied children, the Office of Trafficking in Persons. That's both labor and sex trafficking. Fatherhood programs, child care programs, Head Start programs, um, a lot of research programs, 65 programs. So we, I had the blessing, the opportunity to integrate all this good work to serve the most vulnerable people. It was wonderful. It's vast, though. How many, how many people are employed across all that spectrum of delivery? There are approximately 1,000 actual what are called FTEs, full-time equivalent employees, and then there are consultants. And um, so probably with the consultants, you could have about 1,400 staff. 
both. That seems like a, a small staff given the expanse of reach. But then I'm guessing you're partnering with other agencies and infrastructure on the ground or the states that actually deliver some of the services. We hand we were the pass through for the funding for child welfare to all the states, and then we work with them. We had regional offices that worked with the states. We President Trump was really good about believing in local government, letting the governors have a say and do, and that we would respect that and work with them, not dictate to them. And so you did have this huge army on the ground that we pass through. We also do the oversight. And so the need for more staff at the federal level, you actually probably could have had less staff, was um, is not as critical as it is to have the teams on the ground. The in boots the on the ground really make the difference. Yeah. yeah. And for me, that's my belief. And and as assistant secretary, you know, we hear the word assistant secretary sounds like well, that's down the food chain. But actually, you report directly to the secretary of the health. And human services, Mr. Azar, I think for yeah. much of that time. Yes. And so, uh, as then you have this whole portfolio. I mean, it's on you, right? That's right. And your job is to and manage that. And, and did you did you find yourself thinking swimming in just trying to master the knowledge base, or it came naturally? The knowledge base. As I said before, I was prepared for. I had done it through because the county was very similar where we had, you know, Department of Ag programs, Department of Labor programs, Department of Human Service programs and learning how to work that. So I knew the programs. I knew the issue. What was harder for me as I did the oversight, worked with the White House, worked with Congress, worked with the secretary, was learning the Beltway culture, learning how to work at the federal level. Having been 20 plus years in human service work, I didn't even know the acronyms at the federal level. And I thought, how could the state have some acronyms and the feds have different and it's all human services? So even that took me a while. Um, as an assistant secretary, I was Senate confirmed. All assistant secretaries are not. So it, it, there was a rank and order also of being, are you, people would ask that question. Are you Senate confirmed or are you just a regular uh, assistant yeah, secretary? Okay. And I didn't know there was a difference, <laughs> but Senate confirmed assistant secretary reporting to the secretary who secretary Azar was fabulous working with me on human services and his focus is primary health. There's a lot of health in health and human services. And I, I oversaw the human service side and we did wonderful things. He was so supportive. The president was supportive. His team was supportive. So I was so lucky to be in that position as an assistant secretary, balancing my budget, figuring out where we should prioritize money. Because when I was at the state and local level, I knew where the red tape got in the way. And I was able to help move that where if you sit only at the federal level, you haven't walked that. You may not be conscious of what actually happens, right? That's right. And, That's and so right. let me ask you two questions and you can take them in turn. So great things happened. I'm hearing your enthusiasm for that. Just illustrate some success that you feel like you experienced in the role, some, some translatable improvements. And then also tell us about what's the biggest challenge that you experienced uh, in public uh, policy and administration during your tenure. So first, give me some success story. What, what went right? Well, I would say that the um, successes... One was once I figured out how to 
get to the White House from um, my office. That was a huge success um, because you have meetings there quite often. But I think when I um, talk about success, there were so many. There really were so many. I walked in in September of 2018, and already the economy was good. More people had jobs. The president was talking about, can we eliminate homelessness, not by making it disappear, but by holding people up. Human trafficking was a priority for the administration, and that was a passion of mine to work with survivors and to prevent that from happening. But at one point, um, the president signed an executive order to strengthen the child welfare system in America. And I've worked in a lot of different places and for a lot of bosses. And my stuff is do good, you know, get it done. Let us know how it works. He said, what do you need? What can we fix? And he cared about the people. And so this executive order was one of the more powerful things that I am so proud of. It um, strengthened families. It helped bring resources to people. It increased oversight. It increased partnerships. And he signed it. And the Administration for Children and Families hadn't seen executive orders. It's not the agency that got that kind of attention. But he did an executive order around child care. He did an executive order around human trafficking. I was framing my executive orders. And you get to a pen that he signed them with. And I had the pens. And I'm thinking, this really happened. This really happened. A president of the United States said it's time to strengthen our families in the U.S. so we could decrease the need for child welfare. That was that was one of the best things that ever happened. And, and, so and what, I, did, what did that entail? I mean, how, how are the families strengthened? Well, when we increase partnerships, so often child protection is the silo, the sole entity that is in charge of making sure children are safe. So when something goes wrong in a community, a child fatality, an egregious harm, something that is not appropriate, child protection goes in, sometimes with law enforcement, sometimes not, and they make decisions on whether a child can safely stay in a home. So when you move a child to the foster care system, they have this entire culture of how they care for kids to make sure they're healthy and they have good well-being. But when you don't have all the other systems wrapped around you, if something goes wrong in your system, the Child Protection Agency also takes that negative. And it'll be, that's what you see on the front page of the paper. How did this caseworker miss this? When in actuality, the success of this program is when you innovate and wrap around families. When you have more sets of eyes than just a caseworker. When you have your doctor, your mental health person, your probation officer, your church, your pastor who knows the family, seeing that those children are healthy and well. And so by strengthening the ability for others to get involved and partner with child protection, that was a huge win. Expands the net of people working in this field. I understand. Yep. And seeing that um, so that the caseworker themselves aren't the sole person. I remember we had a we had a fatality in my very beginning of um, working in Jefferson County. And that caseworker felt horrible, had bad dreams, wondered what she could have done different, really, really actually left that role and went to do some other work because 
it was her that made the decision to remove a child and then to place a child. And that's what we had to stop throughout America is to allow caseworkers to work in teams, to work with others, to share information because everybody says, well, confidentiality, we can't do that. We can't not do that when we are protecting a child and strengthening a family. And so that's something that his executive order said, you can partner, wow. you can partner well, do it. And here's some resources and here's oversight by us to make sure that's what you're doing. So it was good. So really, it gave you license to innovate and to build yeah. out. And uh, what a great win. But on the challenge side, of course, you've named a whole list of headlines that you lived uh, in Washington, D.C., facing from the pandemic to the refugee crisis and so on. But what would you say is one of the challenges that seared you and you thought, oh, my goodness, this is a tall mountain to climb? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for me is what you see is what you get. Um, I love working with people, all people. I've always, I've never been extremely partisan when working with human services because all children deserve care. And so people, the partisanship shocked me and they would ask me questions like, well, are you really conservative or are you a liberal or what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just one, always serving my God. I have one boss and then walking like Jesus does. And I care about outcomes. So I love working for this president because he cares for outcomes. But that didn't always go over well with everybody you saw. So I felt um, being questioned because I wasn't from the Beltway. Being, I wasn't in federal government before in this way. Right. And so that was hard for me because of, you know, your confidence, you, you, your assistant secretary, and you're loving everybody and you're giving your input. And that's when the good part was, the team the Secretary Azar had and the work that we did in these crisis situations, daily, hourly meetings around Operation Warp Speed and the pandemic and protests and refugees. I mean, six meetings a day. I remember meetings at 3 a.m. in the morning. OK, call back in an hour and you would call at four and you'd be up at midnight. The team was dedicated to the outcome. And uh, that I've not worked on that kind of a team before that said the win is for the American people. It didn't matter if we didn't sleep for three days. We were going to care for the American people. And the president was right there with us. So that was the best part of the ch most challenging part. And I tell my husband, I'm not a real, you know, <laughs> confrontational person. And I never, ever felt um intimidated to the point where I said, I don't want to be here. Um, I felt, okay, God, let's go. And he, Jesus was with me the whole time. And it was good. People said, you come in the room and things are calm. You, you're always smiling. Um, I have to say, even the, there was a group of homeless individuals outside of my apartment. And I'd walk to the apartment every day. And sometimes it was late. Sometimes it was early mornings. And they'd go, oh, here comes the happy lady. And I thought, what am I doing that they think I'm the happy lady? But I just love people. And that's what I got, whether I was in the White House or talking to the individuals outside of my apartment is, you always seem so happy. And it wasn't all happy things, but it just worked. I think God put me in the right place at the right time. And my team was great. And we just did amazing things, especially during the pandemic. Well, and Lynn, I think I... I don't want to lead the witness here, but would you not say that your own sense of personal identity 
as a follower of Jesus anchors you to weather storms and all kinds of punches and unpredictable turns, twists and turns. I mean, you have to know who you are to be able to navigate through all that you have just described. Well, or at least fake it till you figure that out. <laughs> the, um, I agree. And without that um, faith, I, mean, I didn't have to totally have confidence in myself as long as I had confidence in my Lord. And what I did learn through this experience, the storms were preparing me for the next good thing that I was going to be asked to do, whether it was um, the protests and, and helping those in my neighborhood to working on the pandemic and talking to families throughout the country. And the biggest thing I did was talk to kids who have aged out of the system by creating a youth engagement team. At one point during the pandemic, we had about a thousand kids on a Zoom call saying, what do we do? Um, we don't have anywhere to live. We were in college. The dorms closed, but we don't have a family to go back to. We don't have the technology to take classes. We, Our foster parents are scared that if we go out of the house, we're going to bring back COVID. Those Zoom calls were some of the most valuable, heart-touching things that I think I did. And those kids followed me home. So I'm still talking to so many of them and working. But that storm of the pandemic brought me to know hundreds and hundreds of young adults who are resilient, awesome, incredible. But the storm brought me to that joy. And I am still loving up those kids and, and learning from them. I'm a firm believer that you do with, not for, and that together we're stronger and we move people to success with dignity. And that's what we're doing with the kids. And now I have the same youth engagement team that talks to me while I'm home every other week or every month. And it's just been fabulous. I know that another page turned as you left Washington, D.C. and took a new post with CityServe. But before we get to CityServe, let me go back to your your term in D.C. You, you had the big picture. You had the, you know, the 60,000-foot view as well as right down on the ground, as you've just described, with uh, people who are actually wrestling individually with their challenges. What do you see from coast to coast, north to south, in the foster care world? Do you see anything that says, yes, there's some really good stuff coming here. Here's some innovative approaches. What have you seen? Well, the first thing I learned is that for as critical as I was of the human service systems because of red tape and, and rules and regulations, was that the people that work in human services, social services, counseling, prisons, parole, probation, are the hardest working people that we have in America. They are those who work with the hungry, the orphan, the widow, the abused, the poor, the addicted, the prisoner. I think of Mother Teresa, <laughs> Mother Teresa with the lepers. Um, the hardest work that they're willing to touch. When I think of Princess Di, when she touched the leopard, do you remember how everybody yes, yes, in America yes. was saying, oh my gosh, what is she doing? And she she touched a person. That's what these people do every day is they touch a heart. And as I traveled the country, I saw that everywhere. I didn't see all bad. I remember overlooking Skid Row in California. I was with the Dream Center. And I looked over and I saw the work that was happening by so many volunteers and I turned, I said, I am watching the best of humanity. And someone said, looking at Skid Row? 
Yes, looking at Skid Row, I saw the best of humanity. And then I traveled to Oregon and I met um, a gentleman, Ben Sand, from the contingent. And I talked to Governor Brown, who said she's all in for kids and how businesses, government, nonprofits and churches came together to make life better in the child welfare and human service world. Wow. I, I wanted to clone that program, the contingent, and take it across the country. But better than that was that they had the data of whether are they just doing good and not getting to an outcome, which is real, or are they really making a difference in the state of Oregon? And their data was so incredible that as a government agency, we should we should clone everywhere. The ability to gather data about how people are better off because of an integrated system that cares for people, that was one of the best. But then I went to the next state and said, oh, I see another one of the best. Um, in Georgia, I saw Promise 686, faith-based groups working with nonprofits, working with government to get kids into forever homes. I saw Connections Homes. We have 20,000 kids age out. A mom who said we need to do better than this had one child. After age 21, she adopted eight kids, eight kids. She has eight girls in her home. And she said every child should have the chance to be mentored, adopted, or have a family that loves them, even if they don't want to be adopted. She started Connections Homes. That's now spread to Texas and other places. Arizona, during COVID, they worked with their courts who said the one thing we can do during COVID is finish the adoption hearings for kids who want a mom and dad. Mm -hmm. So many courts shut down. They did 3,000 adoptions between March and October of the first year of COVID and 1,800 reunifications through virtual hearings, more than I've seen when there's not COVID. And so they, they just said, kids shouldn't have to wait for a mom and dad. Let's go. Um, I looked at um, fostering success in Indiana. Indiana won an incentive adoption award for outstanding adoptions. In Oklahoma, probably one of the most innovative, amazing human service secretaries is doing Project 111, Care Portal, and it's all working with faith-based groups, nonprofits, businesses, people. And then there was this string of trauma training going through the country because you can't ask people to detach from family and not feel trauma. And that was for families, for adults, for everybody. And that trauma training is going to be the gravy that makes a difference in this country. But the one thing you will see that is all these programs that I loved, they had an urgency about the response. They didn't say, um, we don't have the services yet. Nobody I've ever talked to who's homeless, hungry, scared, abused, involved in violence has asked me to do a task force before I help them. And these programs are those that are not waiting. They are jumping in and getting the help to the people, even if they don't have a completed plan. They're building the plane while they fly and doing what Jesus would do, and that is caring for the people. And they all were doing this together. Government didn't have to do it alone. The churches didn't do it alone. The nonprofits didn't do it alone. And the business community were active partners. That is the best part. And if we did that throughout the country, we're no longer siloing systems. I think we could reduce these numbers in an incredible way. I'm just hearing you describe it about collaboration as the answer. 
and that again when we when we think about child welfare there's been a um, maybe a an evolution or maybe a devolution depending on your point of view in american culture where that's increasingly been assigned to the government child welfare is the government's responsibility or it's somebody else's job and you keep referring to the way in which community stakeholders partner together to solve the problem that it cannot simply be as you said siloed in one person's hands or another which leads me to city surf so you have found a new chapter uh, working with an initiative at CityServe, which is a, a partnership. I mean, it's an organization that's trying to develop partnerships with uh, churches, especially, and, and their communities to problem solve. Tell me about CityServe first uh, as a collaborative vehicle and then what you're doing there. Well, when I left D.C. Um, January 25th and I got home, I was on my knees. I guess I would say I was licking my wounds a little bit like with, we were just getting momentum. We were actually getting things done. Numbers were going in the right direction. What now, Lord? And um, CitySurf called and said, um, would you like to continue what I called the all-in challenge and keep it going? And I looked up, okay, God, I can do that. CityServe is a collaboration network designed to help local churches create impact and offer hope in the name of Jesus. CityServe trains, equips, and mobilizes the local church to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in the community. And that's through compassion. So its vision is following what Jesus would ask of any one of us. So as a church, as the body, we are to serve the neediest among us. And CityServe has 10 priorities, which we call the all-in for 10, that include biblical principles, the addicted, the exploited, the hungry, the orphan, the poor, the prisoner, and the unreached, the vulnerable, the widow, and Israel. So I would encourage your listeners to go to www.cityserve.us to get more information because they go to every community and they help pull the teams together in order to serve. So with All In for Children, I'm coming into the churches to say, think about if we have more than church on Sunday and we are totally in the community for kids, what could we do with churches, with faith people? Could we make a difference in the community? And that's going all the way to the helping with the consequences of poverty to how about adopting a child and keeping them safe? And I really have to stress safe adoptions because also when I came home, some of the kids who I'd met through my travels called and said, I'm traveling. Can I stop at your house? And I said to my husband, we're going to have kids come into our house. One young man left and I saw he had left something behind. I called him and he said, oh, don't worry, I'll get it when I come home. And my husband said, looks like we've been adopted. <laughs> and then they all decided they wanted to come and hike the mountains of Colorado and do Colorado in the summer. And so I invited 20 aged out youth from all over the country to sleep at my house, which is a small house. We had about three air mattresses per bedroom, the basement, the living room, the dining room. Kids slept everywhere. And they just taught me what it was like to grow up not having a family, grow up being resilient, grow up wanting to have success, but not being able to finish school or not knowing how to read or write. And then getting to the, I was adopted 
but I was abused by the adoptive parents and nobody checked on me. So learning the system in a way that I wouldn't know it because I wasn't in it. So knowing there are more than 380,000 churches in the U.S., and it's believed there are more than 350 million people of faith in the U.S., is it possible that I could, through CityServe, help get 100,000 of these churches to say, we're going to adopt from that, that waiting list and help those families and help that church wrap around those families so that that child or siblings get the very best loving home that they deserve and that God has planned for them. And I, so that's what I think CityServe does. That's what I'm doing with them. And we can mobilize the churches to be stronger together, to unify and make a difference. Am I hearing you say that you've got this laser focus right now through CityServe, trying to help prompt, inspire, dare, uh, challenge, invite churches to get in the game and find an adoptive home for these foster kids who otherwise will age out? I mean, that's yes. really the laser focus, because that could be such a huge win. And as you described earlier in our conversation, when they age out in the foster care system, in addition to the tragedy or the loss of opportunity in those own in those children's lives, there is a social cost to everyone. And if if our churches would step up into that space, how we could change the whole dynamic. That, am I catching you right? Absolutely. And think about it one step further. The young boy who told me about being adopted and being horribly abused. If a church family is wrapped around the family that did the adoption, someone would have seen what was happening to him after the adoption. And that's his biggest thing is he he struggles to support my efforts to get kids into adoption because his adoption was so horrible. And so with a church family being in the community and knowing that there are adopted kids in a home, they can they can help that family before abuse right. and hopefully the abuse would never happen. So we're, we are stronger together, but also think if the church is united and in the community, they might also see that home where the mom is on the verge of because of poverty could lose her own children and could get there and say, hey, we're going to bring you a meal. Oh, you don't have a mattress. We could help you with that mattress. Looks like you're looking for some counseling. We have resources and help prevent a need to remove children because of the harm, the mental health, the substance abuse, or the issues that are going on in a home. Doing church in the community is really powerful as compared to just a Sunday service. Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm hearing you say also that maybe the church has been blind, or willfully or inadvertently so, to this great I would need. say more on the, on the inadvertent side, because on the government side, using faith groups they struggle with the separation of church and state. And so when a faith body comes and says, we can help you recruit families, they don't know if they're allowed or they're not allowed or what they can do. But if there's a relationship because you're working together toward the common end, beginning with the end in mind of getting kids into safe forever homes, you don't have kids sitting for four, five, six years and waiting for that forever home. So the church didn't intentionally say we're not out here to help you because they can't get adoptions done without government anyway. So the two coming together is where the power comes and then working together and still making sure you have safe and loving homes, government, nonprofits, corporate, all together. 
I my, I told the president and the White House in the very first days of the all-in challenge, we could do this in six to 12 months. And of course, they knew how slow Washington, D.C. works, so they kind of laughed at me. But I really still mean that, that if we all focus on this together, and I talk to 40 governors, I talk to a tribe, I talk to a territory, they're all all-in and they still are. If we focus on this, could we get... Even if we did 50%, 50,000 of those kids into permanent homes, keeping siblings together, helping with the medically fragile, I think we can do it. And I know churches can do it. I've seen them in action. So I'm excited about what these next few years are going to bring for the kids who came and slept at my house, who are guiding me all along the way, and who actually have me, I just filed a nonprofit, it's called fostering futures and it is for those kids so that they can do work through a nonprofit. So now I've got two two arms. I've got cities served with the churches and fostering futures with the kids. I mean, Lynn, you're just not going to sit still. We're just not going to be able to 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 get you to stay home because your heart is so deep and rich uh, for life and and for bringing life. You know, you mentioned Kate Brown as a governor of Oregon, and you met up, and you've met with 40 governors. I'm just going to pull Kate out. Kate Brown, I think anyone who's familiar with politics in Oregon, uh, I'm a Seattle guy, so uh, that's my history there. I mean, she's, she's at the opposite end of a political spectrum from, let's say, a Donald Trump or an administration that he might set up. I mean, and yet you're describing a scenario where uh, these opposite ends of the political spectrum could come together on this cause, mm-hmm. which brings me to you've you as you described earlier, you love people, but we live in a political world, and the country itself seems to be so like torn asunder by these extremes. Do you have hope that that uh, maybe maybe you you have this hope because you've seen it work? Let's take Kate Brown and and what's going on in Oregon and and your team from the Trump administration. Uh, do you have hope that this country can pull it together on these issues of human experience and need and work across lines to get it done? I absolutely have hope. I'm one of those people that the glass is always half full, if not even half full, three quarters. But um, when I started the All In Challenge, I knew that if I started with Republican governors first, it would be harder. It would look political. And so I actually started with um, Democratic governors, um, John Bell Edwards in Louisiana, Gina Raimondo, um, Kate Brown, Laura Kelly, and talked to them. And, and it was at first like, why should I help President Trump's assistant secretary? And then as we talked about the kids, what I had the numbers in their states, what I visioned they could do. And, and, I, and I said, I'll back out if, you, if this is if it's too political for you. And everybody said yes, that I got to. I I ran out of time and didn't get the last few governors. But then when we think about, then all the, I got the Republican governors. I got um, the Navajo Nation said they'd be all in. I got Guam was all in. And then I started working with sports stars in Hollywood. Everybody in America should be all in. And so, yes, there were, I had to be um, a little more cautious as a appointee of President Trump. But when I would bring what he has asked me to do and allowed me to do to get to outcomes, very seldom did I have um, a negative response, maybe about just the party in general, because they weren't 
the same party, but not about the issue. And I firmly believe that common issues, common good are what will unite our country. And so doing this work through CityServe, doing this work through Fostering Futures, working with 25 other foster care entities, we can do this. And if we can role model it, maybe we can move it through the rest of the country because it's we can't keep going in the direction we're going. One thing you mentioned in your um, conversation so far is about the health and human services workers are, are some of the most dedicated and outstanding citizens we have, often overlooked. Uh, they're drive-bys. Again, unless you actually intersect health and human services in some point of need, you may not be conscious of how great the need is or how much work goes on for the good behind the scenes. I've heard that you're uh, standing up this National Day of Hospitality to honor uh, workers in health and human services, a, a kind of national initiative, and maybe to encourage churches to start you know, opening their eyes to that, that office down the street or, or the people that may even be in our congregations, but we don't realize what they do day by day. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, we just started talking about this because um, I work with these 20 plus groups, big national groups. It's, um, you know, Christian Alliance for Orphans, Focus on the Family, the Contingent, Casey Family Foundation. So it's not all faith groups, not all secular groups. And we come together and say, as a team of large, large entities, what can we do together? How can we move forward, whether it's reform in the system or impact to the kids? And the um, decision we made at the last meeting was, let's honor our caseworkers, frontline workers, social workers, counselors. And so we are coming together for a day of hospitality to bring churches and nonprofits together to say, we are thankful for what you all do to serve our kids and to serve our families. And we know it's a thankless job. We know it's hard. And we know you're seeing actually some of the worst of humanity. And we want to love you for all that you're doing. And so that's being planned for next year, and I'm excited to see how that rolls and, out. And what do you imagine demonstrating hospitality to them? I mean, what, in tangible terms, what does that mean? Well, what I've seen, because there have been a few groups who've already done this um, to support their caseworkers, um, it could be a barbecue, it could be fixing up their visitation rooms, it could be making sure they have what they need for their families. Um, it's tough to be a mom and or dad and you get called out at midnight to go remove a child. And so just to let them know that we've got them, that we're the safety net for them too. So it could come in any type of way. And I'm hoping we get really creative over the next year because they deserve it. That should be so awesome. All right. So here you are. You're, you're still cooking up ideas. You're still on the front lines. <laughs> Um, if, if, if a call comes from Washington, D.C. someday and says, Lynn, we need you back, what do you think? It would depend on who the call came from. <laughs> okay. It would depend <laughs> on if it's a person that says to me, I want outcomes and not just been on that hamster wheel. And those are all the reasons I went to work for the Trump administration. Um, so I think... It would depend. It would be depend on where I'm at, where my kids are at. If I'm a grandma and I have a bunch of grandkids, it might be really hard. But um, 
to serve, and it would depend on where my prayer led me. Everything I do is by praying and knowing whether this is where God wants me to go. It's tempting to take jobs like that because of ego or high level power. The real reason I'm there is because I want to show what Jesus would do and follow what the only boss I've ever had is Jesus Christ and God and how that works. And so that would all, it would all depend on that. Um, Sometimes you get tempted to do really fun things and that's not where Jesus means you to go. So I have to ask before we close about, about that Jesus thing in you. Uh, where did, where did that come from? How did you intersect with Jesus? If if I am not diving too far deep personally, can you tell us how that happened? You know, I think I, I mentioned earlier that I I used to pray at night. You know, when I was little, and say, "Dear Lord, can I be a saint?" Um, I love Mother Teresa, and I went to Catholic school, and so studying the saints and understanding all of that and understanding Jesus was a big piece of um, being in Catholic school, which I left at fourth grade and went to public school after that. But the my faith, knowing that Jesus was right there with me, never ventured too far away. I had my teenage years, but the um, Christ has held me up through some really hard times, and I've seen miracles happen. So I think it just built. Um, my parents, firm believers, and but very... Um, Catholicism was, we were very strict and um, following Catholics. And that led me. Um, I remember my first Holy Communion where the the nun said, if you couldn't wear that white pretty dress and you didn't get to have a party after communion, would you still love Jesus? And that stayed with me forever. If everything in the world is bad, would I still love Jesus? And my answer is yes. My answer is on the table. I um I don't know how I, I've been so blessed and why my faith is so strong, but I've never been let go of. And Jesus has been with me even when I wasn't with him. So that's pretty much the wow. how it started. Lynn, I'm so, so thankful the chance that I've had today to get acquainted with you. And thank you for doing that for a larger audience with us on the All That to Say podcast. And thank you for your service in Jefferson County with the Trump administration in D.C., now with CityServe and Foster Futures. And thank you for your dedication uh, to a, a dimension of life that, again, many people drive by and yet is so fundamental to all of our common good and person by person. And back to where I started, I was thinking there was somebody like you a long time ago who came alongside me or made sure that there was a place for me. And that is the gift of forever. Thank you. Thanks for who you are and for being with us. Thank you for having me here. God bless you, Jim. And to you as well, Lynn. Hope to see you again Thank soon. You. you know, here at All That to Say, it's a phrase that uh, is, is an attempt to condense a lot of conversation. And after you talk for a long time, you say, all that to say, well, all that to say, We are so proud to know Lynn Johnson. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.